You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. everyone. This is Luke Vanderlinden, Vice President of Membership at the Retail and Hospitality Information Sharing and Analysis Center, and you're listening to the RHISAC Podcast. Big governance news coming out of the RHISAC, big for us anyway. This is the time of year where we have elections for our own Board of Governors. Yes, like any organization, we have a board and our directors, governors, whatever you want to call them are selected via a very competitive election. I won't go into all the details except to tell you that every member company can cast one ballot and directors must be the highest ranking information security employee at their company. So, as you might expect, we end up with some very, very impressive board members. I am very pleased to announce that Diane Brown, Vice President of IT Risk Management at Ulta Beauty, and Jason Stead, CISO for Choice Hotels International, were both re-elected for three-year terms on the board. Diane has more than three decades of IT experience in the retail environment. She's also the co-chair of the National Retail Federation's IT Security Council. And Jason, in his 20-plus year career, has not only worked in hospitality, but also a couple stops at Financial Services Group. So congratulations to them. Newly elected to the board include Ngazi Easy, global CISO for Levi Strauss. His previous positions include Deputy CISO for the Federal Reserve System, wow, and Chief Business Security Officer at ADP. And quite serendipitously, I got to interview Ngazi while we were at our Cyber Intelligence Summit in Plano, Texas in October. So we've moved that interview up to this episode so you can learn more about him. Also newly elected to the board is John Scrimsher, global CISO at Contour Brands, where he oversees the security and compliance of iconic brands such as Wrangler, Lee, and Rock and Republic Jeans. Big, big year for jeans makers uh, with the RHISEC. John, of course, is no stranger to the podcast. He was on a few months ago to talk about our partnership with the National Association of Corporate Directors and their board certification program. By the way, I attended the Aspen Institute Cyber Summit in New York City last week. There was a lot of talk there about the SEC's new reporting rules, which go into effect in December. If you think about it, CISOs and their teams and our traditional government partners in the U.S., like CISA and the FBI, have strong cyber defense as their mission and goal. And of course, that would go for our traditional partners in other countries too, like the NCDC in the UK and ANISA in the EU, et cetera. But the SEC's goal is different. It's to protect and ensure, quote, well-functioning markets. And that is what these new rules are about. If an event occurs that would affect the decision of a reasonable investor whether to invest in a company, the SEC wants that to be transparent and reported. So as a result, CISOs now have a seat at the table, a very important table. Boards and the C-suite will have to better understand the work of cybersecurity. And to that point, several of the speakers at the Aspen event noted the dire need for cybersecurity expertise on corporate boards. We're trying to do our little part with the program John participated in in training and certifying CISOs for board service with that NADC, NACD partnership. We have about a dozen member CISOs going through the program right now. We'll probably get another cohort together right after the new year. If you're interested, you know how to find me. Very sorry about that tangent upon tangent. The Aspen Summit was great. And by the way, John's done more than participate in that NACD certification program. 
He's also been very involved in our third-party risk management working group and a great all-around guy. He will make a great addition to the board. Finally, there is one more newly elected board member, and that's Teresa Joyce, the CISO at Williams-Sonoma, where she provides cybersecurity leadership for lots of brands, including Williams-Sonoma, Pottery Barn, West Elm, Mark & Graham, Rejuvenation, and Outward. And speaking of Williams-Sonoma, we will also be joined on this episode by Manpreet Kang, one of Teresa's team members. Manpreet and Williams-Sonoma have been at the forefront in automating the ingestion and sharing of cyber threat intelligence using MISP. He will be joined by the RHI Zone JJ Josing and Ian Furr to talk about their journey. So I started out by saying how impressive the work and the teams of our board members are. We're very lucky to have their support and contributions in our organization's leadership. So congrats to Diane Brown and Jason Stead on their re-election, and Ngazi Easy, John Scrimpture, and Teresa Joyce on their new election to the RHISAC board. Finally, as this is the second episode of the month, I will also be joined by Lee Clark, the RHISAC Cyber Threat Intelligence Analyst and Writer, for the briefing. And I think, I suspect, he may have the holiday season on his mind. As always, if you have something cybersecurity related you would like to tell us, send us an email at podcast at rhisac.org, or if you're a member, hit me up on Slack or Member Exchange. And if your company is not yet a member of the RHISAC, what are you waiting for? Go to rhisac.org slash join, learn more, and to start the process. That being said, let's get to it. All right, now I'm joined on the RHI Stack podcast by three guests. We have uh, JJ Josing from our Intel team and Ian Fur from our engineering team, and Manpreet Kang from he's a works in security automation at Williams Sonoma. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. So we've talked quite a bit about MISP uh, on on our show, particularly around when we launched it last year, and then as we've added different galaxies like our threat actor profiles and the newer work. Uh, you guys and the Intel team are doing on fraud and more granular tagging by subsector. There's a lot in there that can be explored by people, but the real power in the way we use MIST is how it can be integrated with many of our members' tools as a way to automate the ingestion and sharing of threat intel. So, JJ and Ian, you guys presented a session at our last Cyber Intelligence Summit on this exact topic. As a result of that session, I think there's been a lot more interest from our members in automating sharing and ingesting from MISP one of the members that was an early adopter was William Sonoma. So welcome. Let's let's talk about that. Yeah, why don't we start things off uh, with a, with a general one here, uh, Manpreet. How long has William Sonoma been using MIS? Hey JJ, thanks for having me on here. Um, we've had MIS running uh, in our environment since 2020, so it's been about three years now, pushing on four actually. That's super cool, Manpreet. So you guys have been able to see MIS grow and change as a platform, what made you choose it initially as your tip? So with MISP, there were actually many aspects that we liked. I think uh, the biggest selling point for us was that it is free and open source. Definitely love that. But apart from that, um, it's very customizable. So we can really um, make it our own and tune it to our specific needs. And then lastly, I would say the community is a big plus. Uh, they're incredibly active and, and passionate about what they do. And they're always pushing out new features. I mean, it's like every month there's a new version of MISP out there. Now, I know when it comes to open source tools, sometimes uh, you know members could be a little bit hesitant to want to stand them up due to the fact that they are open source. Uh, however, when I was recently in Luxembourg for the Hack Loose Summit, 
uh, I found out that um, Circle does have uh, a company, Zigrin Security, um, and they've been tasked by the Luxembourgian army uh, to continuously test MISP um, and some of their other open source projects. Uh, and it, just within the last year, um, this company has um, gotten 13 different CVEs, uh, including a few critical vulnerabilities. So. Uh, despite it being open source, there is some continual testing uh, for the application uh, with the security in mind for those that are using it. Who knew that you uh, you rub, rub shoulders with the Luxembourgian army there, JJ? I, I could have, but I, I don't know definitively if I did or not. <laughs> Manpreet, why don't we talk a little bit about the journey that your team has gone through uh, to set up MISS, um, some of the things like how many people were needed on the project, uh, and, and more importantly, how long uh, did it take to go from, you know, the idea, building it out, and then getting it operationalized? So back in, in 2020, when um, we were initially setting it up, it was just me and a one-threat Intel analyst uh, person. And uh, originally, like, we wanted to set it up for just storing our threat Intel data and the... I, get, I would say the process for setting it up was pretty straightforward, uh, relatively painless because um, we used Docker. So it was just a couple Docker commands uh, to pull the image, spin up the container, and we were off to the races, ready to go. That sounds like it was a pretty easy uh, startup process. You had mentioned earlier that one of the pros for MISP on your team was the ability to customize it. Do you want to get into some of the customizations you've made over time? Well, a lot of that is using um, the features that they have, such as the feeds, um, such as being able to create your own tags, being able to create your own jobs, and using the, the API that they have. I think MISP really embraces uh, automation with the API that they have, and uh, we try to take full advantage of that. For sure. I mean, I know over on the integration side of things that the API is super friendly. And one of the reasons we've chosen to push for it as hard as we do over on the ISAC side. So part of that, uh, do you want to talk about consuming the RH ISAC Intel into your MISP instance and the process that you went through to get that all set up? Of course. It was a... Uh, Interesting process. It took uh, a while to get to where we are now. And the RH Isaac Intel feed, it, it provides us with a tremendous amount of value. Um, and I can take you through, through that journey a little bit. So back in the days of uh, the RH Isaac listserv, when that was still around, uh, we were originally just manually consuming the intelligence. So every day an analyst would go in look at all of the intel that came in over the last 24 hours and then hunt based off of those indicators against our respective logs. So emails would be hunted in email logs, IPs, URLs would be hunted in firewall logs, and uh, it was fairly time-consuming, so we'd said, hey, let's automate this. And eventually what we used was uh, a Python script that would free text um, IOC import using MISP's pretext uh, parser and create MISP events out of that. And then uh, we would use our SOAR platform to ingest those and then run a hunting playbook against that intel. Oh, and uh, if the, the playbook came back with any hits, we would leave the ticket open. Uh, if it came back with nothing, we would just leave it closed. That's a great way to operationalize a lot of the intel that we produce. 
So you had mentioned the list service part of that. Can you talk about how that process has changed since we've moved away from the listserv over on the ISAC side and really embraced MISP? Yeah, and I think that was was a huge improvement because now instead of um, you know having to run additional scripts against uh, the listserv, we can simply just sync our MISP instance um, with the RHIZIC MISP instance and then do a fetch, and then it just brings the, the event in uh, pretty seamlessly. Oh, and I would also like to mention that um, a great resource for setting that uh, MISP to MISP uh, fetching was uh, within the member exchange. I think JJ had pointed me out to uh, a document which kind of outlined the the few steps needed to get that set up. So that was that was super helpful in getting us uh, to this point. Yeah, not only do we have the the documentation for setting up the MISP synchronization, uh, we also have several other documents available for members to use. Uh, just general, you know, getting started. How do I share Intel? How do I you know, add attributes to that? How do I do tagging? Uh, and, and basically everything you need to get started uh, with, with either consuming or, or contributing to our MISP instance. Uh, and in addition to that, there's also some video tutorials that follow the PDF documentation. So you know, whether you like watching you know, video resources or just having a PDF, um, there's, there's definitely a lot there to, to help you get started. But going on that uh, same thread, of um, you know the MISP synchronization process. Can you talk a little bit about how you're sharing data back into the RHI SAC uh, in the programmatic fashion? Of course. So this uh, this is data going in the opposite direction now. So the original data would come from our, our SOAR instance where uh, our analysts are working the tickets, closing tickets out as malicious. Within here, um, the sharing is powered by an automation where um, after an analyst closes a ticket out as uh, malicious and they classify this as, hey, this is bad, uh, we make sure it's automatically extract a certain data fields that are relevant to us uh, and generate a MISP event out of those. And then after that MISP event is generated, we would uh, publish that out to uh, the RHIZIC MISP uh, for distribution. One of the key points in there is the data fields we pick. Um, a lot of that is driven by um, the RHIZIC templates uh, you guys have for uh, sharing. Right, and, and for those listening, those templates that we have, um, and those that are also familiar with our old listserv, they, they pretty much mimic the templates that uh, we used to use when sharing via email, um, and have just translated that over uh, within to MISP. Staying with the you know the sharing um, and the automation, how much time do you think is being saved uh, you know, by having this process you know for the most part uh, automated out rather than needing to have an analyst go you know and, and work on it and an incident internally and then capture all of that data and then create a, a share whether that's in MISP or going you know to Slack and sharing that out. I would say per share per every um, event that we push out. It would be approximately, you know, anywhere from fifteen to twenty minutes, reduced down to less than five. I would say, because I, I used to do some of that manual work too back in the day. I would have to, you know, get into the SOAR platform, find all the tickets, run some filters, go into the ticket, uh, scroll through uh, analyst notes, and it was not very fluid at all. 
Jumping back a sec, Manpreet, uh, one of the questions that I get pretty often when talking to members is, what type of data is valuable for us to share? Can you get into the specific types of intelligence you're sharing with the community? Sure. And um, for example, with, with phishing, I think it's important to share out um, the phishing URL, uh, the landing page URL, um, who is sending the phishing email, such as you know the, the, the email sender. Sometimes even the subject um, can be important too, because sometimes the threat actors aren't really changing the subject or um, another one is email sender IP. It goes on and on. Each indicator has um, inherent value. And then depending on the context of uh, the campaign, there may be additional value. So Manpreet mentioned how his uh, SOAR platform is connected uh, with MISP. What other integrations does it make sense for members to um, set up with, with our MISP platform or their own? So I think we've only really done uh, our, our SOAR platform. Can't think of another integration that we have set up. Um, actually, I take that back. We also have set um, our MISP instance up with our firewall EDLs. Um, and that allows us um, to ingest certain indicators and automatically push them into our firewall EDLs for uh, prevention going forward. Ian, you work with a lot of our members on, on setting up these integrations. What other tools have you uh, had experience with? Yeah, I think Manpreet covered some of the classic examples. Uh, with the tools, I mean, there's a myriad of tools that our members use that they like to pull data into. A lot of it comes down to the broad categories. That way, uh, I'll keep this applicable to everybody. But people pull into their AV or EDR platforms a lot so that they can get that immediate block and detection action from some of our IOCs. So pulling straight from MISP and pull those vetted IOCs into, say, CrowdStrike. That way, if somebody publishes a hash that we put through, it immediately eliminates that risk or at least mitigates it. Other platforms, uh, people pull into their SIEM and SOAR platforms, like Manpreet mentioned, into their firewalls for IP and uh, website blocking and things like that. And then there's also a lot of email intelligence that gets shared. So being able to block those senders or spoof domains and things like that has also been a huge draw for many of the members that are consuming our intel. Another one I just saw uh, these last few days was Cribble, which is a tool that will let you pull IOCs from MISP and then ingest that directly into your logging pipeline. So you can pipe it to anywhere that you have Cribble set up to export IOCs to, which opens up the door to publish into a lot more platforms than just those that are going to work with MISP or work with the scripts that we already have set up. And all these things are automated, so you, the the amount of time it takes to ingest and use these uh, alerts n next to nothing compared to having to do it manually, like like Mampi described with the uh, listserv. Exactly, yeah. And it's not even reducing the time to next to nothing. It's reducing the time so that you don't have to worry about it. It just happens automatically in the background. Now, what's our what's our total number uh, of main platform integrations up to, Ian? Um, was it 18? 18 different platforms that we've helped integrate with? I want to say we're just under 20. Uh, and that's not including 
variations of tools for like different tiers, but probably just under 20 with the introduction of Cribble and the ability to push to anything that that can push to opens it up way more. Yeah, and that's just, you know, one of the one of the many, many main benefits you know, of, of us utilizing this is that you know, there is no one size fits all when it comes to integrating. Uh, and it really comes down to, you know, what is, you know, what tools do your teams have available to you? What are your workflows currently look like? And what makes the most sense to to integrate in terms of, you know, where should this Intel be being sent to? What tools do you want it in um, to really help, you know, maximize the efficiency of your team to reduce the amount of work, you know, additional work that would be required. So I guess, Manfred, do you have any words of advice for any other members that are looking to get started with MISP? Anything to make it easier, especially those that want to share data back into the community but don't know where to start? For the first half of that question, I would just say um, try it out. It takes next to nothing but time uh, to stand it up. I would say MISP is as popular as it is because it meets the requirements of a lot of organizations, so it might be able to meet yours as well. Um, for the second question, uh, for those that don't really know where to start, uh, like with everything, it seems the answer is to start with phishing <laughs> because uh, everybody is familiar with phishing. Everybody has a, a process for it. And there's plenty of live examples to follow. And who knows, maybe um, that phishing share out that you send out, it may uh, help a peer organization catch something that would have otherwise gone undetected for them. Excellent. And of course, our own Ian and JJ are here to help any of our members who want to uh, look into this as well. Yeah, feel free to, to reach out to us over Slack, shoot us an email, uh, whatever you're comfortable with. And if you have any you know, MISP-specific questions or, or inquiries, uh, we do have a, a MISP Slack channel uh, with quite a few members in that already. Um, so if you're not already in there and you're, you're curious about MISP or interested, uh, you're working on you know, building out your own or, or any question misrelated, uh, that would be a great resource to leverage. Absolutely. And to add on to what JJ said, if you have an upcoming check-in call with any of the ISAC staff, feel free to add a note in there that says you want to talk about integrations because then we can bring some notes and some materials to get you and your team just that much further ahead in the integration process. Excellent. Excellent advice. Uh, I'm on most of those calls, so I'm happy to, uh, to help facilitate that as well. Guys, thank you very much for joining us uh, again on the podcast. Uh, Ian, JJ, and Manfred. We are now joined on the RHISAC podcast by Ngaze Eze, the global CISO for Levi Strauss & Company. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Luke. So um, this is great. Can you uh, introduce yourself uh, to our listeners? Tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. My name is Ngaze Eze. I'm the uh, Chief Information Security Officer at Levi Strauss, as you mentioned. Uh, prior to that, I was a Deputy CISO for the Federal Reserve. Also okay. held some other... Uh, security leadership positions at companies like ADP, Equifax, uh, McKesson, AT&T, things of that nature. Wow. So you have a, a fairly deep experience in the financial services arena. 
Uh, how does that compare with with uh, your experience so far, but two and a half years or so in the retail space? Yeah, no, interesting enough, my first job out of college was as a retail associate for Levi Strauss. So Excellent. it was a great- It's all full circle. It, it was, yeah, it all, it's a full circle moment for me, but uh, I've been a part of about four different verticals uh, from telecommunications, financial services, retail, uh, healthcare, healthcare as well, yeah. right? And so I think one of the major differences I noted is the overall risk tolerance is just a little bit higher uh, in the retail space. You don't have the same level of regulatory scrutiny, um, as you would say, in the financial services or uh, even healthcare for that matter. Um, but uh, I think uh, as it relates to the embracing of technology, um, certainly a much more uh, competitive and aggressive market. So I think from a cyber standpoint, um, it really challenges us to make sure that we're fully aligned uh, with the business and what they're doing from that aspect. Right, because it's a little bit more high profile in some cases because of the, these brands, particularly the one you work for, well-known well household name brand. And those industries are, as you said, heavily regulated. And so being a part of an ISAC is less optional than it would be in our space, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think people in the retail uh, or organizations in the retail vertical could potentially opt out, right? But at the same time, um, you're dealing with the currency of trust and, and brand awareness. And the brand is so important to every organization uh, and in the retail sector. And so certainly from a cyber aspect, it's really critical to partner together um, to make sure you're kind of solving this enormous challenge of uh, cybersecurity. That's great. I love currency of trust. That's a it's a great way to to. It sounds better than reputational risk because it's it's much yeah, more. Yeah, that that didn't land very well yeah. for very long. Right. But uh, absolutely, I think the business understands uh, currency and finances more than anything. Perfect. Uh, so you inherited the membership. Uh, Levi Strauss is already a member when you joined. So uh, did you find that there was already an ingrained uh, culture of sharing and collaboration, or is that something you had to work hard to keep going? That that's a great point. I. I did inherit uh, RHISAC, uh, but we renewed, right? right? We thought it was really critical and important. Um, we really like to try to gather multiple streams of cyber intelligence. And we thought that having intelligence in the retail vertical is absolutely critical. We get great intel from our MDR. We get great intel from our EDR partners. Um, but I think it's really important to get you know, information uh, from organizations that are being impacted uh, of like size, uh, you know, in the same vertical and the same challenges to, to really be able to respond to today's threats. And having come from all these different sectors, do you see the importance of the sector-specific sharing or is it just a convenience because it's companies that are more like each other than, than a bank or, a, or, or the Fed? Well, you know, I think uh, certainly, I'll, I'll take a little bit of a detour. I think it's critical because I think retail organizations, it's important to um, share information in the vertical, but I actually think the line between, let's say the technology vertical and the retail vertical is shrinking. So, so much of what we're doing from a business standpoint is we're conducting business via e-commerce. So much of our um, our currency, our digital platforms are all being connected from a technology standpoint. So we have a, a tremendous technology footprint. Um, so we have a, a, a vast attack service to, to defend against. And so certainly we may not have the same regulatory scrutiny, but we have that same challenge to protect our brand from a technology standpoint. So I don't see it as um, a nice to have. I actually really see it as a criticality for us.
That's amazing. Thank you. And so what what keeps you up at night for looking at that attack surface? And you, I think it's interesting. We are kind of technology companies that happen to sell things. But so what, what keeps you up? What are the biggest threats that you see? Well, I think ransomware is important. Um, I really think deep fakes are, are concerning uh, for me. See, yeah. um, and I think that we have to do a tremendous job with ransomware, deep fakes, AI, and all the negative ways that those could be used. Um, but I think from my perspective, what kind of keeps me up at night, what I like to tell my team is let's control the controllables and some of those foundational things, um, making sure that we're um, identifying, capturing, and mitigating risk. And we're doing that on a repeatable basis. I think those are some of the things that really keep me up at night. It's missing the things that, that when you look back, gosh, man, we, we shouldn't have missed that one. And those are the things that, that really concern me. So looking more broadly at cybersecurity, it's obviously something you do professionally. How does it impact um, the rest of your life and um, things that you may do for the good of society? Or, or how does it ingrained elsewhere? I love that question, the work-life balance question. Right. I certainly think <laughs> sure. that, uh, you know, cyber protrudes all of it. I don't think you can do this. This is a, a vocation, right? Um, I, I, would, I would be overselling if I was saying that this was a calling, but this is something that you have to be excited and energetic about because you're con passionate, absolutely, because you're constantly uh, outmanned and outgunned and you're doing what's right for the organization, um, you know, while everyone else is kind of, at least the bad guys and the threat actors themselves uh, are profiting off of, you know, your mistakes and your challenges. So before we go, I want to ask you about an organization called Savvy, Savvy Cyber Kids. Tell me a little bit about this group. Yeah, no, that's a great, great organization, uh, Savvy Cyber Security Kids. Um, it's easy to say. Yeah, it's a tongue tie. It's a tongue twister. Uh, it's a great organization, right? So it's really an organization that helps provide, you know, materials for educators and parents to help children navigate, you know, the the, the world that we live in uh, and the web itself, right? We all understand that everyone on the web is not necessarily there for uh, altruistic purposes. Right. And so um, the organization, it really helps provide those resources to parents and educators to help lead them and the protection of children online. So I imagine it does a lot with not only security awareness, but also just kind of social engineering and things like that, the way kids could be. Oh, absolutely. Social engineering, is, it's got a great series of children's books. Oh, it really helps to take the content of uh, cybersecurity and really kind of put it to a relatable level. Uh, at a children's level. And I think you can see more on uh, SavvyCyberKids.org. Good uh, good shout out and good direction to go to the website. And Ghazi Eze, thank you very much for joining us on the RHI Side Podcast. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Join me in welcoming back to the podcast, Lee Clark, cyber threat intel analyst and writer for The Briefing. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me again, Luke. So uh, what are we going to discuss today? I feel that there may be some bells in the air. Maybe we're thinking about certain fat men coming down the chimney. Uh, I don't appreciate jokes of that type, Luke, but today <laughs> we're going to be discussing the uh, the holiday threat trends report that we just released here at the RHI site. Excellent. Tell me all about the holiday threat trends report. And no, I wasn't talking about you, Luke. Sure. Uh, so... Essentially, uh, we started this process maybe last year or the year before, and every year we release uh, a report 
for uh, the public. It's a TLP Clear report that, that we post for the public. And it essentially is a retrospective look at uh, what holiday threat trends have been in the recent past and what we predict they're going to be like this year because for the sectors that the RHI set covers, uh, the holiday period, that being October to the end of December of every year, uh, is actually not just the busiest times of year in terms for uh, actually doing uh, business and, and making money, but also for being targeted by uh, threat actors, right? So we produce this report every year. So how is the report organized? So we start with a retrospective look uh, at statistics from previous years. We have a uh, stellar uh, research capability uh, here at the RHI SAC uh, that reviews data analytics, that resource being uh, Sierra, uh, our, uh, our data expert here. Uh, Sierra looks back at what major threat trends sharing from prior years are for the holiday period, and I compare that data to the current period to get a trend line. Then we break that down in a couple of ways, essentially. Part of the report is based on member perspectives, uh, where we ask key subject matter experts at member organizations to provide some insights on what threats they're seeing and what preparations they're making. Then we uh, give a, a statistical rundown of the threats that membership have reported to us. Then we typically have uh, a point of view from an associate member. This year it's Akamai providing uh, a little bit of a analysis on what they've seen this year. Uh, Akamai gave us uh, a lot of information on uh, malicious bot traffic and increases in mage card style attacks, which was really helpful. Then we usually close it off with like a special topic on analysis from the RHI SAC. This year, it was a retrospective on the massive increase in ransomware that we've seen this year compared to last year. So in addition to the ransomware segment, what were some of the key findings? So in the past, we've seen familiar malware like Lokibot, Qbot, Emotet, and Drydex rank at the top of the list of threats that members report. And this year, it was interesting, we did not see them uh, rank as prevalent tools leveraged by threat actors. That's a divergence from previous year. Uh, credential harvesting, phishing, imposter domains ranked as the top threats. Now, one thing I'd like to note here is those threats qualify more as tactics, techniques, and procedures, TTPs, than they do specific malware families or types of indicators. That actually is a pretty good sign for our membership that they're developing their cyber defense maturity over time, right? That's a pretty good sign. And then we saw a couple of familiar malware at the end of the uh, list of top most important trends, being Agent Tesla and Formbook specifically. So for the current threat actor season, social engineering and fraud types are ranking overwhelmingly as what uh, members are reporting. So if we talk about key trends specifically, we saw credential harvesting holding first place and actually rising in prevalence from the previous period. Uh, we saw phishing increase significantly statistically in the current period. And then we saw imposter domain statistically uh, holding steady, which is interesting because when we ask members for their direct perspective, they highlight imposter domains as a key threat specifically, despite that the prevalence of that statistical reporting not increasing, right? So that's a little bit interesting. Yeah, so what were some of the other key member perspectives in the report? Sure, so we asked 
members uh, a number of questions, right? Uh, what their primary threat focuses are, what defensive measures they're focusing on, anything different from previous years in the threat landscape, common gaps in defensive operations, and then major advantages. So what we find overwhelmingly is that the primary threats members report are social engineering, uh, ATO, bots, and fraud. The biggest change members report is uh, an exponential explosion that they think they are seeing in imposter domains and MFA bypass. This is targeting both the enterprise, that is, member organizations themselves, and their customers in basically equal measure, right? That's the biggest change they talk about. Follow-up change a couple members mentioned, and even though it's not cyber, we went ahead and mentioned it in the report, is that... um, Organized retail theft, which we would basically describe as smash-and-grab type thefts in brick-and-mortar stores, Uh, members report that increasing in, I guess, both prevalence and intensity, like uh, smash-and-grab operations appear to be getting a little bit more aggressive towards store personnel, which which can, you know, be, be pretty threatening at this time of year, right? And then if we talk about gaps, uh, members cited the same sort of gaps that they talked about last year, which is uh, it's hard to communicate between all the different departments inside their organizations because their organizations are running customer support. They're running uh, brick-and-mortar operations. They're running accounting. They're running uh, e-commerce applications, right? And making all of those uh, different organizations within a, a firm work together can be challenging, right? But to combat that, one of the things they talk about in terms of advantages is increasing cyber maturity in the form of both uh, analytical capability and in mature security controls. Things like um, implementing identity and access management for guest uh, accounts. And I think in the analytical capability, what we talked about earlier, like starting to track more on TTPs as opposed to indicator or malware-based tracking, that helps you block quicker based on attacker behavior, not on specific, say, file types uh, that attackers are leveraging, right? And then for what threats are gaining the most focused, members overwhelmingly talk about uh, significant fraud activity of various types, especially refund as a service fraud, uh, return fraud, gift card fraud, and loyalty points fraud. And just a quick plug here, uh, the RHI SEC uh, recently launched a fraud galaxy in MISP uh, to help members combat this. We released a blog about this on our public blog, and that's essentially a catalog of all the major fraud types that our members report experiencing, and that's indexed uh, by industry type, and it's indexed by TTPs leveraged in those fraud types as well. So we're hoping that can end up being a resource for the community to help defend against this. Yeah, no need to make that a quick plug because it's a tremendous resource. Uh, so thanks for bringing it up again. Uh, so going back to ransomware, what did the, your review of the ransomware threat uh, landscape show? Sure. So you and I talked about this a little bit uh, a couple of months ago on the podcast, as well as uh, members who attended the summit uh, will know that I I, I did a, a TLP Amber Strict Chatham House Rules talk, specifically talking about ransomware incidents within our community. So this report is based on data that came from that talk, but 
sort of redacted for the TLP clear version. So I'm pretty sure on the last podcast I said, and uh, it's worth repeating again, that even if uh, Klopp hadn't exploited the move vulnerability to hack, what, a thousand organizations uh, at this point, I'd still be reporting on a massive increase in ransomware activity targeting our membership uh, and in the the larger industries that we try to protect in addition to dues-paying members, right? We're, we're the ISAC for the entire community, not just our own members. What we've seen is a sharp move to a strictly extortion model rather than encryption, right? In the old days when we talked about ransomware attacks, almost entirely what we were talking about were threat actors locking files on a victim computer and demanding payment in return for unlocking those files, right? We're not even seeing that in most cases. And in a lot of cases, because the volume of compromises that ransomware gangs are making is so high that a lot of times you don't have time to go in encrypt everyone's machine. It takes a lot more effort. Uh, so what what we see organizations moving to is we used to talk about double extortion, triple extortion attacks. Um, and what we are seeing now is threat actors tend to be moving towards simply posting a company's name on their blog, giving the company a, a deadline for when their data will be published publicly, and demanding payment in exchange for that data not being uh, published. And of course, uh, double extortion can still apply in this. There, there are reports of threat actors demanding organizations pay twice because we we say you'll pay twice, um, right? Yeah, that's a, that's great, and that is kind of like the version of a smash and grab in the online space. It's so much easier just to go in, grab something, and then ask for money for it uh, not to be released. Sure, but there's also something that that's interesting to note uh, for for people who aren't quite familiar with the way ransomware gangs operate. A lot of ransomware gangs do not talk to their victims as if they have robbed them. Oftentimes, uh, ransomware groups uh, cloak themselves in the verbiage of being red teamers, right? Pen testers. We are a pen testing startup, and we pen tested your organization and determined that we were successfully able to exfiltrate data, so you should give us a bug bounty. Uh, for uh, doing this for you is, is the way they sort of clock their uh, or cloak their uh, operations, right? You know, you know, it's interesting. I, I was in Brussels a couple of weeks ago at a at an event uh, that EuroCommerce, one of our trade association partners, did, and there was an example of of a typical ransomware interaction. And yes, they use the terms of business as opposed to uh, kind of a more abrasive, like uh, you know, we're victimizing you. It was pleasure doing business with you. Kind of, kind of thing. So we should note here, uh, in, in past positions, I, I've communicated directly with ransomware threat actors, best customer service helplines I've ever experienced in my life. And and this is something that's that's worth discussing here is these ransomware operations do not operate according to like mob rules or something, right? They have payroll. They provide benefits to employees. They have help desks. They have IT support, right? And it's also important to note that a lot of people who work for ransomware organizations, especially in foreign countries, say Southeast Asia or uh, Eastern Europe, Central Asia, they don't know that they're working for a scam organization. They don't know that they're working for the, the most prolific ransomware group. They probably wouldn't know what ransomware was if you talked to them. They think they work IT help desk for a local tech startup, 
And there's a shell company on their paycheck every month, and they get insurance and everything like that, right? As yeah. a, the, they these come in, they operations in. are, yeah, they go to yeah. a cubicle, yeah, yeah. Uh, they they have offices, uh, they have cubicles, they have payroll, they they provision uh, machines uh, to employees to to do work on the same way that a, a legitimate organization should do. So we should note like that sort of professionalization of the of the ransomware scam tactics, right? It's a, it's important. So the last thing I'll note here is a, is a couple of increases we saw, right? In 2022, our membership discussed a total of seven individual ransomware families, whereas in 2023 so far, members have reported a total of 12 ransomware families. So we've seen a pretty big increase uh, in and specific organizations that members are tracking. In addition, for 2022, members shared intelligence related to intelligence groups a total of 200 times. That means if you add up all the times one of our members told us something about ransomware, it added up to 200 times, right? At the time we cut off for the data collection for this report, which was at the end of September, our members had reported intelligence on ransomware operations 419 times. That's a 109.5% increase in one year. Uh, and only three quarters of the year. And, and only the first three quarters of the year, right? Uh, I'll be excited to see uh, when we put together the next intelligence trend summary and I look back on ransomware stuff if I see if it's grown significantly higher after that as well, right? Important note to make is that members sharing intelligence related to ransomware does not indicate or preclude an attempted compromise of their organization. It could be something they found in the wild, something they found during an investigation. All those 419 shares for this year do not necessarily indicate 419 compromise attempts against a member by a ransomware organization. I want to make that clarification. Thank you for that. And, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I attended the Aspen Cyber uh, Summit in New York City last week. Talk about ransomware as well and uh, consistent with what they talked about there with uh, with the moving to an extortion model or different ways to to profit from ransomware that do not necessarily involve encryption. So uh, this is great. This is great stuff. Great report. Um, if everybody, if anybody wants to download that uh, TLP Clear report, just go to our website rhisac.org, click on the navigation under I think it's resources and then reports, and then it should be there, along with a lot of the other reports that uh, that we publish and that we've discussed on the podcast before. Luke. Excellent. Well, thank you very much as always for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you to all my guests, newly elected RHISAC board member and Ghazi Easy of Levi Strauss, Manpreet Kang of Williams-Sonoma, and the RHISAC's own Lee Clark, JJ Josing, and Ian Furr. By the way, in case you haven't heard, our next summit is moving to April and will be in Denver, Colorado next year. The website is already live and you can go ahead and register. Just go to summit.rhisac.org. As always, thank you to the production team who do their best to make us sound good. From N2K Networks, formerly known as the CyberWire, that's Jennifer Ivan, Trey Hester, and Elliot Peltzman, and Annie Chambliss from the RHISAC. And thank you for tuning in. Stay safe out there. <laughs>